bit we got started without me. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Sandra Collins and I'm the director of the National Library of Ireland. I am absolutely delighted to welcome you here tonight to the library for the final uh, interview in the Inspiration Proclamation series. 2016 has been a really busy year for the National Library of Ireland. I feel like we're just hanging on for the last month now. We had a year-long programme of events. We staged two major exhibitions. We digitised the papers of the seven signatories and made them freely available for everyone online. And right now we're collecting the record of this wonderful year by archiving the full range of activities and programmes from across the country. So it's the old memories and the new memories. But it's through this series of interviews that we particularly wanted to facilitate a very reflective discussion about the relevance of the proclamation in 2016. I am very, very honoured to have Professor Mary McAleese and Dr John Bowman here tonight. I don't think uh, Mary McAleese needs any introduction, but I will take a moment. She was inaugurated as the 8th President of Ireland in 1997. She served two terms as President, holding the office until 2011. She's a barrister and a former Professor of Law, and she's the first President to come from Northern Ireland. The theme of her presidency was building bridges, and she has a long-standing interest that I'm sure everybody here knows about in justice, equality, social inclusion, anti-sectarianism, and reconciliation. It really is a, a privilege and an honour to welcome her here tonight. Can I ask you all to note the emergency exits beside you, to make sure your phone is on silent, and to note that we're recording the interviews for podcasting later on. So it's my pleasure now to hand the floor uh, to John Bowman. John is, of course, a renowned historian and broadcaster and the author of Ireland, the Autobiography, which was shortlisted for the Bordgosh Energy Ireland um, Book Awards 2016. Thank you. Now, um, Mary McAleese, very welcome. Um, Mary McAleese, I, I, this, I'm perhaps repeating something of what Sandra said, but I made my own notes. You grew up in Belfast. You're a graduate from Queen's University. Um, you practiced as a barrister and a television broadcaster with RTE, if practice is the right verb in that case. Um, and you were director of the Institute of Legal Studies in Queen's and, and the first woman to be pro-vice-chancellor, um, eighth president of Ireland, elected in 1997, and agreed candidate uh, seven years later, so you had two terms in 14 years. Um, you're also a theologian, and it's been suggested that you should be appointed a cardinal. Very bad suggestion. <laughs> Not one that is ever, ever likely to be fulfilled. Are you saying you'd turn it down? Absolutely. <laughs> I, on the principle that, um, you know, when you have 600 million women thirsting um, half of the Catholic Church is women, so they're 1.2 billion, so 600 million women. If you're thirsting in the desert, you know, 600 million of you, I think given a glass of red wine to one woman is really rather inadequate. <laughs> so. You wouldn't be tempted to work from within. I'm doing that, oh, no, but I know not that. within the within. No, right. There are certain withins that, for me, are just too without, really. <laughs> That's one of them. That's one of them. OK. Mm. Now, uh, so let's begin. Anyway, the clothes. <laughs> How would you ever compete? Ever? No. Do you, Couldn't do it. 
you, you're obviously a fan of that wonderful scene in uh, one, that Italian movie. Do you know the scene I'm talking about from the 1950s? No, it's black and white. Well, it's, it's the cardinals on the ramp, as if they were in, uh, in Paris at a fashion show. I'm sure some of, some oh, of you yes. know it, do you? Nobody in the room knows it? Yeah. Yes, that's right, Fellini's Roma. Yeah, it's absolutely a sensational scene. Because they, they walk with all the, the hauteur of the, the, the model uh, on the ramp, you know? But it's terrific send-up. Anyway, and it makes the point you were making, I think. Um, now, you, the, the, the proclamation as text, hmm. what's your response? As text? As text, as, as 500 words. Hmm. I, well, first of all, it's a legacy document. Um, so as a legacy document, it's going to be terse because it's a document that is to be unpacked, um, uh, perpetually, in a sense, unpacked. So terse, but also it has to be poetic. It has to reach to the emotion. It has to explain the context of the rising, but also the context of anti-imperialism, Irish identity, Irish nationalism. So it's a document that is going to be unpacked for a very, very long time and very deeply. And I think that's probably its, its great strength is that it is a terse document, but it's also a document that uses language really rather well, um, very emotional, goes right to the, you know, right to the core of things. I'm also very struck at something that I wasn't so struck with before because I didn't really know. But this year I was teaching a, a course on the Great War and, and 1916 in an English university. And I spent quite a bit of time looking at the um, two things. First of all, Redmond's language. And, um, and the, so the language of John Redmond, but also the language of the posters, the World War I recruitment posters. And as I was reading Redmond's language and reading the recruitment posters, what kept coming back to my mind was how brilliantly the proclamation used that very language and put, if you like, turned it back on itself. I mean, um, uh, Redmond uses the, I mean, he describes um, uh, the, the act of union uh, between Britain, Great Britain and Ireland as having no moral legitimacy, as being illegitimate. He do, he's the person who uses um, the word usurp, the usurpation of Ireland. This is not the language, it's the language of the proclamation, but it's the language of Redmond. And the other things that I noticed are the, the, the kind of language of rallying to the flag, summoning her children. This is all the, if any of you, I'm sure many of you have seen the posters. There's a lovely book that um, John Horne uh, brought out called Our War. I'm sure those of you who are interested in that period probably have read it. And he uses, uh, in, throughout that book, but there are a number of contributors to it, but there are a number of the posters. And actually, as you're reading the proclamation, that same language of rallying to the flag, rallying to the cause, trying to provoke something self-sacrificial in people, something outside of themselves, above themselves, the language of the heroic um, is in there. So it's clever, the text is clever. Um, I, I rather like the text. I love the fact that you know, we, start, we start off with a word that nobody would really ever heard before, publucked. I mean, the, the word didn't exist in the Irish language at that point. So they find this word. And the very fact that it is a word that is new and has been invented, if you like, it, that's part, again, of what has to be now unpacked. Because they're appealing to something 
inside people, how many people over the course of the rising would, and because of the rising, and because of the aftermath of it, would change their view about the relationship with empire and the relationship with Ireland. So this is a new word for, essentially, a new time and a new era that is coming. And I love the fact that it also starts, you know, Irish men and Irish women. You know, we get in there early on. Not bad, you know? And that as you track down through the very short paragraphs, you know, we, equal opportunities, equal rights, suffrage for men and women. Very few countries at that time had universal suffrage, where maybe one had. Um, so, and not just universal suffrage, but suffrage for men and for women and for all men and all women, because of course in Ireland at that time, only a fairly privileged elite um, had the right to vote, a privileged male elite had the right to vote. So th this is extraordinary language. Uh, it's far-seeing, it's far-sighted. It's the language of human rights. I mean, really, until you get to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, what is it, thir 32 years later, it's not until you get there that you get the same language expanded. And the other thing that I love about the start of it is the appeal to God. I'm not doing this as a Holy Mary now. There's a, there's a political argument for this. Um, this the, the mention of God, in the name of God, and the dead generation, but in the name of God. Because when you remember and it's sometimes too easily forgotten, they were tilting at the British Empire. This, this was a, you know, the first major serious tilt at the British Empire. And what, among the mythologies that underpin all, empires to me are not admirable institutions. That's the first thing I'd say up front. Um, but on, among the things that underpin the British Empire, and not just the British Empire, um, was the divine right of kings that they ruled by divine right, that it was God's will that that person would head that empire and that empire would be hierarchically structured in the way that it was. Um, and so right up front, God is invoked as wanting something different for his people, equality, justice, freedom, sovereignty over their own land. So it seems to me that the use of God there it's not that they, it's not, you know, it's not a holy invocation in that sense. It's deeply, deeply political and challenging, challenging the mythology that underpins empires. I mean, the divine right of kings, seriously. Um, uh, you know, we, we would regard that as a risible, con, you know, uh, uh, notion nowadays, though indeed there are still parts of the world where it continues to operate. Um, and there are still people who might very well believe it to be true, even of, you know, of, um, of more um, uh, sort of almost democratic states which have monarchs. But that straight up there, it's, that's what I mean, but, but unpack. Mm. In the one word God, you know, they're making a very strong statement about where these rights come from. These rights are, uh, when you get to the, uh, they talk about them being indefeasible. Um, same thing really is inalienable. So suddenly, we're also into a discourse about natural rights. Some people, might, some people actually would call them divine, used to be called divine rights. Some people would now call them natural rights or natural law. Um, and these are rights that nobody gives you. No government is entitled to, to concede to you. These are rights that arise out of your human dignity. 
uh, these are rights that governments should recognise and should vindicate and should, and should of course, um, 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 should flatter in how they, uh, how they organise themselves, should respect. But, but governments don't give them to you, you're entitled to them. So it, here again, and this, you know, these words, like words like God and indefeasible, they're raising huge natural law concepts. Taking um, the fact that Count, Count Plunkett went to see the Pope before the rising, to seek his blessing and so on for the rising, do you think in some ways it was a, it was a Catholic rising? I don't, know. I don't see it as a Catholic rising. That, I mean, it was all, there was always going to be a lot of Catholics involved, precisely because of the numbers involved, but no, but I don't. But why did they then seek the Pope's blessing for the rising? Well, I think the, in advance. Well, I'm it not going to argue with the historians yeah, on it yeah. because it's a you know how, how do we put ourselves into that space of that time? Here's a small group of people, relatively powerless against the biggest empire in the world. I guess you looked for what help you could get from where you could get it, um, and the Pope was a pretty powerful and influential person then, as he is a pretty powerful and influential person now, and there were a lot of Catholics around the place and involved in the rising, and it. And of course, too, diplomatically, the Holy See would have had huge influence around the world because even then, even though it didn't have anything like the extent of diplomatic relations that it would have now, nonetheless, it still had very extensive diplomatic relations right around the world. So it did have that influence. Presumably, looking forward, as indeed we did ourselves here much later, long after the rising, when the Holy See was, you know, it was very important that the Holy See gave our country recognition as, um, as an independent country, precisely because that moral influence right around the globe was regarded as really very important, very influential. So, um, you know, yes, um, we have these... We have these stories that are part and parcel of it. Was it a Catholic rising? I don't believe so. My father always used to make the point, he's from County Roscommon, God rest him, and um, lived very close to Douglas Hyde. Um, and um, my father always used to get really rather upset at hearing this idea that somehow um, the Gaelic revival and the, the push for Irish independence, um, leaving aside the issue of the use of violence through the rising, but he always used to get exercised and he'd say, you know, um, I talk about Hyde's great patriotism, and he would talk about a woman called Roshni Ogoin. Does anybody know about Roshni Ogoin? I'm sure some of you do. She was a woman called, she was actually Rose Young to her own name, but my father would have known her as Roshni Ogoin. And um, she, um, she was, she would have been a niece of the then Lord Brookborough, and I think an aunt or a great aunt of the current Lord Brookborough. And she belonged to a coterie of people who were very strongly associated with the Glens of Antrim. Um, upper class, um, Ulster Unionist, um, um, belonged to that um, Ulster Unionist, Protestant elite, um, great friends of Rory Casements. She wasn't the only one. There were a number of women um, of her generation who were all deeply embedded and became, became convinced Irish nationalists. So, but numerically, they were always going to be a heck of a lot smaller precisely because of the sheer volume of numbers, the sheer, the sheer numbers of Catholics. Um, so was it a Catholic rising? Look, read the text of the proclamation. What can you say? It, it's not, it wasn't a call to create a Catholic republic, that's for sure. The language of it 
you know, the, the, the inclusion of, the, of, um, of northerners, those who had been, you know, who had been estranged from their natural, if you like, natural hinterland. The idea of religious liberty for all, the idea of equality of every human being, every citizen. So I don't think it's ambition, whatever about the ultimate outcome, I don't think it's ambition was to create you know, a Catholic Republic. Yeah, you know, it sought, it sought with great deliberation to call on um, the divided minority, um, well, the cherishing all of the children of the nation equally and oblivious of the differences carefully fostered by an alien government, an alien government. which mm -hmm. have divided a minority from the majority in the past. Um, do, what's your view of that, that, that phrase, which many historians believe has been totally misunderstood, cherishing all of the children nation? Because in the oh, earlier part of the rising, uh, sorry, in the earlier part of the proclamation, they say, summons her children to her flag and strikes for her freedom, the opening sentence. And this is another reference to the children of the nation. Correct. Yeah. And there's all this vanity around where they're only talking about, um, you know, that you're not allowed to use this phrase unless you're using it in relation to you know, our northern separated brethren. I mean, really. I get really, you know, I couldn't be bothered uh, even getting into that because, you know, just read it. It's very, very, one of the great things about this document is its inclu inclusivity, that everybody was included, even people who didn't actually want to be included. Um, but they were included. And so that's the first thing. They are included, and I think that was that's probably one of the most important and prophetic things in the document. Now, so then it talks about cherishing all of the children of the nation equally. Those who would argue that that phrase, cherishing all of the children of the nation equally, can only be used in the context of one group of people, many of whom don't want to be regarded as children of the nation, seems to me to be wrong. I mean, it's axiomatic. No, I accept, if, I accept if you talk about If you're talking about all the children of the nation, then you're talking about all the children of the nation. And end of. And it seems to me people have really, people have responded to the beauty and the poetry of that phrase, and they have used it and stretched it and elasticated it and used it in all sorts of places, which is exactly what you would expect from a terse, taut document that requires perpetual unpacking, perpetual reflection upon movement through generations, movement through times and history. So and I don't get too vain about the use of, I mean, I use it loads of times, loads and loads of times and got given, got, got gave out to um, for using it, got given out to, you know, about using it not in the context of, um, of, of the Ulster Unionists. Um, and my point, they are, they are beautifully included in this and they are included in that beautiful phrase all the children of the nation equally, but I'm in there as well. I'm one of the children of the nation. You're what? You're children of the nation. It says it. It's axiomatic. All no, it's, the children it, yeah, of accept, the nation. Yeah, one, one can accept that it is obviously an egalitarian document which would cherish all of the children of the nation equally. The point here, though, is that as expressed in this text, mm. it is. Well, I'll just read it. The Republic guarantees religious and civil liberty, equal rights, and equal opportunities to all its citizens declares its resolve to pursue the happiness and prosperity of the whole nation and of all its parts, cherishing all of the children of the nation equally and oblivious of the differences carefully fostered by an alien government which have divided a minority from the majority in the past. And do you think that that justifies only ever using that phrase, cherishing all the children of the, na of the nation no, it equally? No, it can be borrowed and expanded in Correct. the sense that you're saying, Absolutely, but it, yeah. it's, it seems to me evident on, in, in that paragraph that that is a, a reference to... Funnily enough, I don't think that, but um, 
I, I think that it's axiomatic that everybody is included and that it certainly is in the same paragraph in which the ref, that beautiful reference um, to those who have been you know, oblivious of the differences that have been so carefully fostered, etc. It's beautiful. But it's also in the paragraph that talks about pursuing the happiness, religious and civil liberty, equal rights, equal opportunities to all its citizens. And the way I used to look at commas, if you look where the commas are placed, um, the reference to the, our, the separated northern brethren is after the comma. It's after a, there's a comma and an and. And that seems to me um, to be not, not, a separate, uh, not a separate phraseology, but an additional and a very important one. But I'm not even, I couldn't be bothered arguing about it. At the end of the day, all the children of the nation to be cherished equally, then, you know, that it's, it's, it's a phrase that is a axiomatic. It's definitely talking about all the children of the nation. Um, not just talking about one section, but all of them. And it's a very beautiful phrase. And it has touched people's hearts in a really special way. In so many ways, you can, t I mean, clearly, I mean, I've had people say to me, but you know, they didn't really mean just children. <laughs> really, you know. Oh, I hadn't figured that. Oh, thank you for telling me, you clumpet. Um, I mean, seriously. Um, wh why would we even bother arguing about it? It's really not important. But it is a phrase that has become so, it's become, it's, be, it's become unpacked in so many challenging ways for us as a people. And I think it should continue to challenge us. And, um, and, and, and it's right that it does. And it's right that the beauty of it and, and the challenge of it um, is always hovering in front of us and that we can appeal to it. And people, people have really taken ownership of that phrase in very many ways. Um, so I, I just don't get too, you know, I don't get too vain about it, even though I sound like I'm getting kind of vain about it. I better stop talking about it now. Yeah. In 19, on the 50th anniversary in 1966, you were a schoolgirl in Belfast. You were yes. 15. Yeah. What was the, what's your memory of that particular uh, 50th anniversary and how it impacted on Belfast? I was um, mid-teens at that time. I was just coming up to 15 years of age and um, living in Ardoin. Um, one of the, uh, uh, the um, flashpoint areas of the Troubles, still to this day, has the highest incidence of sectarian murders in Northern Ireland per capita. Nobody comes close. 70% unemployment in its streets at that time. And um, there, so our context for the 1966 um, commemoration was utterly different to the context south of the border. Um, shortly before, um, it was a very, very complex context also because in my own parish of Ardoyne, um, where, which was a place where Catholics and Protestants resided but on opposite sides of the road, um, I was one of a very... My father, um, who was from the west of Ireland, who really didn't know the geography of Belfast or the politics of Belfast all that well, um, bought a house... As our, he, um, my family felt they had to increase, multiply, and fill the earth, you know, all on their own. So um, the family kept growing exponentially. And the little two up, two down houses that we were born in on the Catholic side of our join um, eventually, you know, just couldn't cope. And my father bought a house on the other side of the road. And so we became the first Catholics to move into the other side of the road, which meant that I grew up in a Protestant hinterland all my life. Um, all my friends, my whole hinterland was all, you know, people who headed to First Presbyterian, Free Presbyterian, Second Presbyterian, Gospel Hall, Church of Ireland, Methodist. 
Um, and in fact, my, my best friend who lived in our street, her, at her wedding, my sister was her bridesmaid, the wedding took place in, um, in um, um, uh, Thiepville Barracks because she married a, a Scottish soldier. You can imagine how that went down with our, um, with our um, Catholic neighbours. Um, we were under oath not to tell anybody you would be tarred and feathered in those days if you had nothing to do with the British Army. And here are we at the wedding in the barracks, my sister, the bridesmaid. But the Methodist minister who was Sidney Callaghan, anybody who would be involved in, um, in ecumenical endeavour would have known Sidney from Belfast, a wonderful man. But when he made his speech at the wedding, he pointed out that, that he knew my family better than he knew hers, that he'd seen me more often in his church than he'd seen her, the bride, um, and, uh, which was true. Um, because from very, very early uh, childhood, from early teens really, I was always interested in other churches and other expressions of, um, other expressions of, if you like, theatre denominationalism. But anyway, to go back to um, Belfast, so Ardoin. The week before, maybe a few days before the, um, the march, uh, there was this huge march up the Falls Road, a week after the Rising, it said that the anniversary of the Rising uh, it was huge, um, and um, I was there with my father and the um, brothers, sisters, cousins, and aunts and uncles. And um, but the week before it, there had been, and in fact, in the weeks before it, there had been a growth in tension. Now it hadn't been helped by the fact, if you remember, somebody blew up Nelson's pillar in Dublin, and, and that was grand for Dublin, but it didn't play out very well in Belfast and in particular didn't play out very well um, with people like Gusty Spence and the UVF who were just beginning to come um, back into plotting and planning um, the, the, um, the beginnings of a new campaign against Catholics, a sectarian campaign. And the first, the first, my first hint of that, or my first experience of it, was we lived beside a little school that many of you might remember, it was in the news for a long time, Holy Cross School in Ardoin. Do you remember that awful time when the children had to run the gauntlet of, uh, of um, uh, anyway, they had to run the gauntlet of rather nasty sectarianism? But that wasn't, that wasn't Holy Cross's first experience of sectarian troubles. In 1966, just immediately, in a, a few days before that march was to take place, Holy Cross School was firebombed. And it was firebombed because um, Terence O'Neill was due to give a talk in it. And it was also the era of O'Neill and Lamas and that rapprochement. Things were beginning to look good. It was the era when people like me, young Catholics, were getting the benefit of free second level education, had the aspiration to go on to university, uh, talked about in that fantastic poem of Seamus Heaney's from the Canton of Expectation, where he describes the, the, this colossal change that, is, that is, was effected in Northern Ireland at that time, thanks to free second level education and access to third level education. And he talks about intelligences brightened and unmannerly as crowbars being unleashed into the body politic and into the civil space. So there's that and people like Con McCluskey and his wife and, um, are underpinning the incipient civil rights movement uh, with the great new science that was social science. Instead of, you know, instead of complaining about things and using anecdote, they were measuring and they were confronting with facts and with statistics. And so th there was a new feeling about. There was, we'd also come out of the Second Vatican Council. So there was the new mood of ecumenism abroad, um, which was not appreciated by Paisley, who was only just beginning to put his mark 
on northern politics at the time. That was all going on in this space at that time. And then just before the, just be, I think in the month before, in the month before the anniversary, the April anniversary, um, Jerry Fitt won the election. That was mega for the Catholic mm. community. Absolutely mega. Um, that was the Westminster seat. He'd it was the Westminster seat. He already seat. had the Stormont seat, yeah. We had the Stormont seat. That was the Westminster seat. Yeah. And um, nobody, of course, he had, they, there had been no split vote for the first time people had used their heads. And so, um, and my memory of that march, which O'Neill, to his great credit, did not ban, and he was under fierce pressure to ban it, but he did not. There were a lot of marches in and around that time, but he didn't march. He, he let them go ahead. And um, anyway, I still remember standing outside my aunt's house on the Falls Road. She had a boarding house right on the front of the Falls Road, a place called Broadway, and nothing like Broadway. Um, and anyway, we, so we were, all, we were all in that house, um, uh, all of us watching the parade go past. And I can still remember picking out Jerry Fitt in, at, the at the start of the parade. Um, as it happened, um, the Grand Marshal of the parade um, was married to a cousin of mine. And that cousin of mine, it was her house, her mother's house that we were in. We were, we were upstairs watching it. And uh, as the, 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 the pavements were thronged and the, 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 the street was thronged with the marchers. And, um, 70,000 marchers, weren't there? About, a lot of people. Yeah. And um, uh, anyway, my father, of course, he, he, had, he had walked up a good bit of the march. He had walked up with the march. And he stopped at the house at the gate. And we were watching from upstairs when um, a Catholic special branch officer um, uh, came along, dressed obviously in mufti, um, who was clearly following or watching the parade, and who knew my father because he was from our parish, from Ardoin. He came up and um, stood alongside my father and started to talk to him. And my aunt, my great aunt, who was a terribly elegant, rather Victorian and very um, very elegant lady and um, not given to bad language at all at all. Um, suddenly, when she saw my father talking to this man, she went into an awful tailspin altogether. And we kids were all dispatched downstairs immediately to drag my father in, she said, before he gets himself killed, mm -hmm. talking to that person. Mm -hmm. uh, she didn't use that language. It was a little more colourful. And, um, and that, for me, was kind of... Um, I, didn't, I wasn't really aware of those kinds of tensions, you know, the, uh, I, the man concerned had a daughter at my school and I had observed in the weeks before this, we all went to school uh, on the same bus, a bunch of girls going to a convent school in the Falls Road, Dominican convent, but I had noticed um, a change in attitude to her. Um, and I can only assume um, that it was partly that we were to tell her nothing in case it went back to her father. Um, and um, I would always have a, uh, even though I always would smile at her and say hello, um, I never befriended her. Even, I mean, she lived quite close by, but I never be, she was a little bit older than me in fairness, but I I, I'm always conscious that, um, that there was um, a standoff between her and the others. And I can only imagine, though it was never said to me in my house, but I can only, because but some of the girls that I would have gone to school with, their fathers were old IRA men. They were people who, had, who were lifted subsequently, and some of them spent time on the Maidstone, and some of them were interned. So I guess those tensions were starting to play out 
in our, you know, our incipient um, adult relationships. And in school, in terms of the curriculum, in terms of the history class, and in terms of, say, debate or even talk, did, the, did that 50th anniversary play any role in, in the school of I Dominican might convent? as well have been in a school down the road from Maggie Thatcher. For all the reference there was to Irish history, nada, zilch, nothing. No, um, we were learning about Bismarck. And um, um, absolutely no relevance whatsoever to anything going on around us. It was as if we couldn't go there. We just couldn't go there. So our curriculum, I was in the first year, I think, of my O-level curriculum at that time. Um, no reference to Irish history. It was like Irish history didn't exist. Um, and I think possibly um, our nuns were very, I mean, they were very delicate around a whole lot of subjects, um, <laughs> to put it mildly. Um, and um, I mean, I still remember asking one of them, um, we were doing the Hellenists in St. Paul's, um, in the Acts of the Apostles in St. Paul, and uh, the word circumcision came up rather regularly, and I got, we all got rather bored. And I eventually put up my hand and asked her what it meant. Um, now, I had five brothers who'd all been circumcised, so I really probably didn't need the information, but, um, so, um, but it was only for sport, you know, as you do as a youngster in school. And um, I can still remember Mother Laurentia, God be good to her, who incidentally had been the head of a teacher training college, um, drawing back, in those days they still wore the big voluminous outfits, drawing back the voluminous um, sleeve and drawing a little circle on her arm. And she said, I understand it's a little circle inscribed on the arm. <laughs> so, anyway, so if that was what we I, were I being... I thought she was know. going to use her sleeve as a, uh, no. <laughs> as a demonstration. Uh, no. I couldn't quite believe where no, you were you going, where she was going. Didn't, yeah. You didn't go to a convent girls' school in the Falls Road. Um, so if, you know, if that was their attitude to things like that, you can imagine there was great delicacy um, around the issue of the rising. Uh, because we were, in a, we were in a different sphere. Um, we were in the unfinished business. We were in the, the divided community. Um, um, and I guess there probably was a fear that if you put things, that, that if, that if we, I, I don't think we had the language to deal with it. Now, other places might have been different. I mean, I know that friends who went to school in Newry had no such compunction. They were all doing projects on the rising, while we, meanwhile, were not having um, anything to do with the rising. So no, our school curriculum didn't cover it. And I'm very interested, to, again, in reflection backwards because I was involved in school debating um, all the way through school and I was part of the school debating team, there were a bunch of us. And um, in my class and in my year and on the same debating team was Dolores Price. Um, we didn't call her Dolores, we call her Dolores. And uh, God rest her, Dolores Price was in my year and we went through all that time, and I had no idea of her, of her, the, what her family had been through, how that had impacted on her politics. Um, so we actually, and I've often taken the view that in, we lived cheek by jowl, without revealing much of ourselves, because that was the kind of community we lived in. Uh, Catholics didn't reveal themselves to Protestants. Protestants to Catholics, but Catholics didn't always reveal themselves to other Catholics. Um, and I would say the same thing probably might very well have been true in the Protestant community also. Um, that you could live very close to, people really were very private. There was no Facebook, there was no social media, there was no place to, you know, to, to put out there who and what you were. Um, and so I'm always kind of shocked at the extent to which I went through seven years of schooling with people and I had no notion of what they believed 
um, what their background was, um, or and, and as their futures evolved, um, th they never really evolved along a trajectory that I thought they would um, as a youngster. And you had been down to Dublin. Your father brought you down to yes, Dublin. Yes, we, we were we were here for the Easter Sunday celebrations yeah. and um, the actual celebrations. We were here for that weekend. Uh, but my father also wanted to show us where you know where the pillar had been and uh, where Nelson had been. And um, because I mean there was I mean there was great joviality around that and jocularity and songs and and um, uh, so anyway yes he brought us down to see all that. Um, and, and we had been here for the, for the, um, for the actual um, uh, for the commemoration here. But we were very aware going back to the north that what was embarked upon there was a very different phenomenon. Um, different context, darker, bleaker. Um, and though none of us were to know it, um, people very often date the start of the Troubles to 1969. Well, you should have been around in 1964 and 65, and 66, but particularly 66. Because 66 for me, really, um, you know, we had the bombing of Holy Cross School. Um, we then had the uh, four young, uh, the, the shooting of Peter Ward, a uh, young barman. Um, my father had a small pub, but before that, he had been a barman himself and the head of the barman's union. He knew Peter Ward well. And Ward was murdered. He was murdered, yeah. yes, by yeah. Gusty Spence. Yeah. Um, drinking in a, just, it was a sectarian murder. And we had a bunch of stuff. There was a Catholic pub bombed. I lived at the top of the Shankill Road in Belfast. Um, um, I mentioned that at Sardoyne, well, the Shankill Road runs right up to the back of the Catholic monastery, the Holy Cross Monastery. It changes its name as it goes up the road. It goes from being the Shankill Road to the Woodvale Road and then on to the Crumlin Road, but they're all of a piece. And um, I lived on all of them at some stage or another, and um, depending on the size of the house and the size of the family. And... Um, uh, but um, the, the um, loyalists um, attacked a Catholic pub, um, which ironically was on the Shankill Road. And they managed to, they were firebombing it, and they managed to miss it. And um, they um, set fire to a house next door in which a, young, a very elderly Protestant lady lived. And um, she died um, of, of her injuries subsequently. So, you see, we had gone from a time of, of what looked like hope um, with O'Neill, Lamas, ecumenism. I mean, I, for me, one of the uh, one of the greatest moments um, of my lifetime um, ecumenically was when Paul VI gave his uh, his Episcopal ring to Michael Ramsey in 1966. That was in the same around the same time. In fact, it was before the march. Um, and I remember um, I went to live in Rome a few years ago and uh, started to attend um, uh, events in the um, Anglican Centre um, in Rome. Um, and at the top of the stairs, um, there was the picture of Michael Ramsey getting that Episcopal ring. And I just, uh, I can still remember the, 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 just the great emotion that sort of washed over me. So there were really hopeful things happening then and confidence building. Well, there was also uh, foreboding, wasn't there? now there was deep, yeah, deep, yeah, deep yeah, foreboding, yeah, yeah. and it was being generated by the same people who had incidentally generated the same foreboding in 1912 and 1913, who are often for geek conveniently forgotten about. The people like Carson and Craig, who um, created the Ulster Volunteer Force, who threatened civil war, who threatened anarchy, who brought in arms from, guess where? Germany. Mm. Um, and who, um, who provoked the formation of the, of the Irish Volunteers, 
um, and who seemed to be able to get away with um, things that, when they were done by um, those who became involved in the rising, were then characterized as treacherous, um, traitorous. And um, so that, to me, we see the people who had lived through that, the older generation, people like my grandfather, who had been in the old IRA and who was in the march that day. We were all, we were, I, I remember we were trying to pick out uh, the people that we knew in the march, but the men at those times all wore either hats or fedoras. Gee, you couldn't, you couldn't pick out your granda. You know, every time we thought we had him, it wasn't him, it was somebody else who looked like him. Um, uh, but people like that, they held the memory of what they had been through and they didn't want to radicalize us. They didn't want to turn us into um, freedom fighters. But at the same time, neither did they want to turn us into cowards who would be you know, oppressed by the circumstances, who would give in, who would lose this burgeoning confidence. Um, they, want, they obviously wanted us to be educated. I mean, my mother and father left school at 14 and 15, uh, respectively. And um, they, and my grandparents too, um, left school obviously very young. And, but so, so they saw their future in making us understand our history and know what that darkness meant. I mean, we were well educated about it. My husband and I often talk um, about, um, he, he meanwhile was being reared on, in East Belfast, also the, the only Catholic in the area he lived in. And um, uh, the nice that you develop, you know, the kind of the street wisdom, as you're walking down the street, you know, you can see a couple of guys or you can see a kind of a group and you know from the cut of them, the set of them, the, you know, either you get out of there fast or you're safe to go. Because um, Belfast deeply territorial, you know, from here to there, uh, the territory changes. It's very cantonized in a, in a way. And um, so, and, and our children, now would have would be clueless about that. I'm I'm grateful that they are in some ways clueless about that. But on the other hand, this was a street wisdom that we needed to have. And growing up through the 60s, from the, that period on, when the O'Neill uh, uh, Lamas rapprochement started to fall away, Paisley came into the ascendancy. It was my parish, and that area that I lived in that was in the cockpit mm. of it was the seed. It was the place that eventually <coughs> seeded what became the troubles, the, the so-called you know, troubles that broke out in 69. We had been living with the vestiges of them, the, the, the seedbed of them, from, from probably 66 at least onwards. In 66, O'Neill described Paisleyism, uh, said that it reminded him of Germany and fascism in the, in the 30s. And, and, he, mm -hmm. and well, he, those are his words. Why did it do that? Um, um, because it was, you know, it was a call to sectarianism, and it was a call um, to um, to arms, um, and the outcropping of it. I mean, Gusty Spence in 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 the years, Gusty Spence spent a very long time in prison. He had a long time to think about these things, and then subsequently, as you know, he was the person who announced the UVF ceasefire, and and he himself uh, became a man who reflected very deeply on those times and talked about the influence, the, the words, the, 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 the words that were spoken by people like Paisley at that time that were inflammatory, but, but the, the person speaking them cast them out um, into the wind to do what they would and then stood back and took no responsibility 
um, for how they subsequently inflamed passions and hearts and streets miles away, or maybe not so far away. So yes, we were living, we were living in, a, in, a, in a world of inflammatory words, and those words were having consequences on our streets. And it became, I mean, I, I went to school, it sounds ridiculous, I mean, I lived in Ardoyne, I went to school in the Falls Road. To get to school in the Falls Road, I walked every day down the, down the Woodvale Road, top of the Shankill, through Woodvale Park. Now, Woodvale Park was not a safe place for Catholic children, but I carried my hurl with me. That's how I went to school and that's how I came back. And luckily I never had to clatter anybody over the head with it. The look of the mere instrument seemed to keep everybody in check. But that's what you did. You know, you carried your, your hurl. And at weekends when I wanted to go to that park to use the swings, I went with my Protestant friends and believe me, they were more effective than any hurl. They were brilliant. And they could spot somebody, you know, about to pick on you a mile away. And they were great, they were great defenders. But that's... That was the way it was. The lo we were sort of wedged between two parks, Ligonil Park and Woodvale Park, and they were no-go areas for Catholic children. Can you imagine it? The park, the swings, the slide, the merry-go-round, you know, and you couldn't go there unless, you're, unless you had adults with you to protect you, or unless, uh, I was very fortunate to have wonderful Protestant friends that I have to this day who, you know, who, would, who would literally have died for you. To come back to the modern to today and the, and the whole experience of 2016. What is your view of how this, the centenary of the Rising has been well, commemorated? We've been fortunate that we're 100 years away from it. I regard myself as very lucky, lucky to belong to a generation, a century away from it. Um, and, um, and that centenaries you know, evoke, provoke, um, and they're delicate things, particularly given the amount of time and effort and lives that have been invested in both rebuilding the fractured relationships on this island and, and building anew the relationships between Catholic, Protestant, North, South and East and West, London, Dublin. So we've that huge investment made and now tested in a way over a really rather sensitive period. And I think that it's been done brilliantly. And I think we could be very proud of it. Um, I'd like to think that um, out of it have come the kind of um, relationships now, north and south, um, that people can still say tough things to each other, but you don't risk breakdown in the way that might have happened in the past. Um, there's, an, there, there's, there's a solid ground there. And that solid ground, it seemed to me, revealed itself over the course of the celebrations and the commemorations this year, they were delicately handled, they were inclusive, they weren't triumphalistic, um, and, and, and they encouraged debate. And out of that debate, I think people learned a lot of things. I mean, I was teaching this course in England, and very interestingly, um, it was um, a gentleman, I can't remember who he was, but he was from, um, um, he was English, but of um, Protestant Unionist background. And he said that for the first time it had hit him uh, in discussion about the men of 1916 and how I regarded them. And I said, I grew up, they were my heroes, you know? Now, in the 1960s, late 1960s, I had to decide, I actually had to decide from first principles, as my husband did, are we, were we going to go out and defend our homes, because we both lost our homes? Were we going to go out and defend our parishes, you know, with guns, with bombs, with bullets, with bricks, with glass, with were we, or were we going to go the route of Daniel O'Connell, which, thanks be to God, was the route that my father 
um, always impressed upon us at home. Um, that, that use, your, use your language, use your persuasion, use your education, um, use, your, use the law, use the democratic and the constitutional. And we had, to make, we had to make that decision as individuals in 1969 we, and through the, through the troubles, through awful situations and the loss of friends and angers and frustrations so deep that sometimes you think they will never be assuaged over a lifetime. So all of that. And um, I look at that now with a distance. And this friend in England or this acquaintance said to me, you know, he said, it never occurred to me before, he said, I was pointing out to him that when I talk to the UVF and the UDA and they tell me who their heroes are and where do they draw their inspiration from, Carson and Craig. If I talk to my best friend, who's a member of the Ulster Unionist Party, who's her inspiration? Carson, Craig. She's complete pacifist. I mean, she's not, she doesn't believe in taking up guns and arms and... Um, whether they're loyalist or whether they're whether they are whether they are whether it's the IRA or whether it's the UVF, so here are two strands of um, of Protestant Unionist thinking, which draw from the same source and the same well. We in turn, um, you know, history as it moves through, it splices. You know, our our heroes can be drawn in many different directions that they themselves did not set the course of, and so. The IRA will, of course, um, these are their heroes too. Um, John Hume would say that these men were his heroes. Um, Jerry Fitt, they would have been his heroes. So I don't think we need to apologize for that. Uh, and I certainly would never apologize for it um, because in 1969, I had to ask myself the question, um, can these people still be my heroes but still not draw me into paramilitarism? Uh, where some of my friends got involved um, uh, and, and, uh, and some of my family. Um, I, I have a cousin who um, joined the IRA and was a hunger striker. Um, and my mother's sister's son, uh, eldest son. Um, and, you know, I look at that family now and I look at his brother-in-law, you know, who was um, uh, the recipient of a major award from Her Majesty the Queen. Um, and that's where we're at now, you know. Um, times, and we're very privileged, I think, to have that distance and that huge investment in reconciliation, and to have you, and knowing that, and knowing how precious that was, to have brought great delicacy to this year. I mean, I have to say, I think Heather Humphreys just did the most amazing job, uh, with a great, just you know, a lovely woman's touch all the way through it, and um, I was very proud of how we've got through it. I, one of the things that I was most proud of was when I listened to, um, I'm going to forget his name now, um, but he was a, he's an, um, a British Army officer who was here um, observing the, the um, Easter um, commemorate the actual uh, Easter Rising commemoration at the GPO in an official capacity. And he is a brother of, an Ulster, of, a, of a Northern Irish uh, Unionist politician. And um, he remarked, um, uh, and it was well recorded, particularly in the press in the North, that he felt completely welcomed. And he felt that um, the, the commemoration was a commemoration that anybody of any hue 
could have watched and not felt threatened by, insulted by, but rather he could feel the delicacy and the sensitivity in it. And I thought, well, actually, it's better people like him say that than I would say it, um, because I have a vested interest. We might even say a conflict of interest. But to hear someone like him saying it, volunteering it, seemed to me to be, um, it, was, um, it was the kind of thing you like to hear. And I believe it to be absolutely true. We have questions, I know, in the audience as well. Can I ask you to wait for the microphone because th this is being filmed and we need to sort of capture the beginning of your question and, and hear it? You must have silenced You better them. talk up and wake them up. We can just <laughs> raise the voice so everybody wakens up out of the reverie. Yeah. Sorry, but somebody here in, in front row, yeah. <laughs> Fergal O'Quigley from the Department of Arts. Fergal, how are you? Working with yes. Minister Humphreys, I'll pass on your, your congratulations. Not well, you, you two did a great job. <laughs> I know that in back of her, there have to be great men and women. And not, not speaking on in an in official capacity, I just, your own journey, you mentioned Gusty Spence and Ian Paisley. You have a direct connection with Gusty Spence through one of the founding violent acts of the Troubles you know, your father knew the, the, the barman of a shot. And then you intersected again with him, was it 30, 35 years mm -hmm. later? You saw Paisley on the ground rousing the crowd. That, that, that concept of let the words go out there and stand back. And, and we see that happening elsewhere today with kind of some, with some worry. And you meet Paisley in a different situation 30, 35 years later. I, I, that, that's an amazing arc. And, mm. and what's your re reflection on, on, on that? And on an individual level, you've, you've met those people and looking back and looking, looking where we are today. It's, uh, I think that's a, one of the, for me, the, probably the, the greatest um, lesson from the time that I've lived through and it is the capacity of the human person to change, that nothing stays the same. And that if you have, um, as we had in Northern Ireland, that um, uh, huge conflict, uh, that, um, that, that huge divide, um, some people look at that and thought that it was impregnable, that, it was in, you know, that there, there was nothing you could do with these, these monolithic cantons would forever you know, go in orbs and orbits that would never ever intersect. And that was wrong because the human person, it seems to me, there's such, I, I have become very friendly over the years with a lot of people in the, in the UVF and UDA, um, and not just since I became president. I mean, I, um, uh, one of the, um, because, of, because of where I lived in Ardoin, uh, it was my fate um, to live um, next door to a, um, a young man um, who I mentioned earlier that one of my sisters was bridesmaid to a um, uh, to a British, a Scottish soldier who married one of our Protestant best friends. Well, in another home um, at the top of the Shankle Road, um, my, another sister of mine was bridesmaid in a, to a, a Protestant family who had a son who went out one night and killed four Catholics and a Protestant. The Protestant man was killed walking past Ardoin Church 
and was picked out as a Catholic. Ron Lee was on his way to work in the shipyard and he was murdered. Um, and that young man I grew up with, I was in and out of his house every day. Um, and I, I won't call it, it wasn't lucky, you know, but I saw the devastation wreaked on his mother and father. I saw how it broke their marriage. I saw it, how it broke family relationships. And in the seeing of that, you see, th 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 this is not monolithic. Um, there's a lot of human brokenness in all these things. He's a young man sitting in a, a club on the Shankill Road. Um, the IRA had killed people a, a few nights previously. A few lads start to throw ships and somebody gets a gun and they decide they're going to go out and defend their people. And as luck would have it, this all happened very shortly after I was called to the bar in Northern Ireland. So I guess it was about 24. And he was, uh, this young man uh, was arrested. He made a confession statement immediately. But I, unknowingly, um, I was sent down to do his um, deposition. And it's just literally, I don't know if you've ever worked at the bar, will know you can get thrown a brief and you're, you're actually reading the name of the client as you're going down to meet them. And I was a very junior, junior, so this is the kind of work that I got thrown at me. And I went down to the cells, uh, there were four names, and I have to say, as I was reading as I went, and it wasn't until I opened, until the cell door was opened, and I went in and I realised that one of them was this young man. And uh, I was horrified, really horrified. And... Um, I said to him, and then I read his confession statement, which was so apologetic for having killed a good Protestant man, and no mention of the other four he'd killed except to say that um, they deserved what they got. Like one of them was a young 17-year-old Catholic girl who was serving petrol in a petrol gas station or petrol station. So, and I said to him, dear God, John, how can you think this? I said, sure, you know, we've lived next door to you. We grew up with you. And then he said to me, but you're not one of them. I said, but I am, John. Oh, no, he said, you're not. You're different. And I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm no different. I mean, I'm a Catholic like them. And um, so here we lived next door to one another, you know, and in and out of each other's houses. And we still lived in this abysmal ignorance of one another. And it always, I, so I always knew that if we could fill in the abysmal ignorance, we would get to the humanity in people and that the humanity in people, everybody wants peace. I don't believe anybody really wants war. I don't think people who have kids want their, want their children to be so confined to the house that they can't walk their district in peace. I honestly believe the impulse for peace lives deep within most reasonable human hearts, no matter how bitterly they feel towards each other. And so... Um, from a very early stage, one of the great um, um, joys of my life was uh, I was 17 when I met my husband, Martin, through debating. And early on, um, we discovered that we both had, um, we both had asked ourselves the same questions, you know, about how we find ourselves in this situation. How do you respond to it? Do you go down the route of violence, and, uh, which, we, which we both believe was a zero-sum game? Or how do you get out of that? And there were two things that took us out of that. One was the gospel, the great commandment to love one another that kept challenging us. Um, and the second thing was Daniel O'Connell. He was, we both discovered that we had a great interest in O'Connell. And um, when we got married uh, in 1970, uh, when did we get married? Thank you, 76. Um, we got married in 1976. Um, um, we, um, 
we, um, uh, we'd, he was working for Erlingus at the time, and we could have gone to any of the nice exotic places that Erlingus went to, but no, we went to Kerry. <laughs> and, um, and we went to Kerry, I'd never been to Kerry at, before, and we went to, on, a, on a pilgrimage to Dan O'Connell. And um, we wrote in advance um, to Cahir Daniel and a relative of his, I don't know, a great grand, whatever, very nice lady, um, entertained us there with tea and biscuits. We were the only people who visited the house that whole day. Um, and we felt so embraced by her and that also. So in a way, from, from the very beginning of our marriage, um, may, I, may I also say that on the morning we were married, two of our guests were murdered on their way to our wedding in a sectarian murder. Yeah, that can, that, if you want your wedding ruined, it's a very good way. Now I can tell you to ruin your wedding and also your honeymoon and possibly your life. Um, the house of the young man that I mentioned a moment ago, the young Protestant man who went out and killed the Catholics. Well, on the other side of him, just up you know, a couple of doors, lived a Catholic family of 13. And the youngest two boys in that family were a couple of years older than me. I was the oldest of nine. I always wanted older brothers always all my life and they were my Tony and Miles O'Reilly were my two older brothers and they were murdered they were shot and set fire to um, on the morning of um, our wedding and um, so now through our honeymoon and in I often think that you know the good Lord brought us to O'Connell brought us to Cahar Daniel brought us to a place where we had to set out all the pieces of this blessed jigsaw puzzle we were living in now. It was real, and we had to figure out, how are we going to deal with this? And that's what we decided, that we would commit to the gospel commandment to love one another, forgive, find the forgiveness, and find a way to bridge. So I got involved you know, from then on, really, and we both in anti-sectarian stuff and, um, and ecumenical endeavor. Um, and uh, I'm always very grateful because not everybody made those choices. I mean, some friends of mine, you know, people that I played badminton with, innocent young people, got angry enough to go join um, really awful organizations. And a final part of that story, the, 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 when Tony and Miles were murdered, bigger pardon, um, when um, the, they go back to the gentleman, who, the Protestant gentleman who was murdered by my Protestant neighbor, because he thought he was a Catholic. He was killed outside Ardoyne Church, and directly opposite the church, my cousin Paddy had a wee newsagents, and um, Paddy um, heard the shot and ran out and um, found this man dying. And Paddy didn't, he, well, he, as it turned out, he eventually knew him, but you know, the man was bleeding profusely, and Paddy didn't recognize him, but he was outside the chapel, and Paddy made the same mistake as the killers. He presumed he was a Catholic, and he did what Catholics do. He whispered the act of contrition into his ear as he lay dying, and he died in Paddy's arms, and may I say also brought Paddy to an early grave, the trauma of it. But anyway, fast forward. Many, many years later, I was asked to do a, a radio show. Do you remember that big book that came out, Lost Lives? Yes. And um, David McKissick. It was so thick, that book. There were so many lost, mm. anyway, all about the troubles, people who'd lost their lives and the troubles. Mm. And I was asked to do, you know, to reflect on one of the deaths, and I reflected on this man's death. And my cousin Paddy, you know, saying the act of contrition and what have you. Anyway, as it turned out, that man had one child. She was eight years old when he died, and her mother um, went into early early dementia and with the result that she never knew anything about her father except that he had died a violent death they moved away her mother was ill 
nobody wanted to talk about it. But when the historic inquiries team, years later, she's now in her 40s, and years later, uh, she decided that she wanted to go and see what was on their files. And somewhere along the line, somebody had picked up this broadcast that I had done. I was president by then, and she got in touch with me to see could she come and see me. And I thought, well, I have nothing really to tell her, you know, except that, you know, what happened? Uh, and I wasn't there, but I knew from my cousin Patty. And when she came with her husband, I said, I have so little to tell you, I'm ashamed. But I said, I do know that my cousin Patty went to his grave uh, broken by that event, but also horrified to think that this Protestant man, that he maybe added insult to injury by, um, by whispering the act of contrition. And I can, I, I, it was extraordinary. She said to me, I didn't know that. She said, that's not in the documentation. I hadn't said that on the radio and hadn't mentioned it. But I said, I'll tell you it anyway. She said, you've given me the greatest gift that you could have given me to know that my father died at peace with his God. So, like I say, people, the humanity, the decency, the goodness in people is what you work on and work with. And I found it in all sorts of people over the years. Um, you know, that capacity, it's what proclamations are about. It's what gospels are about, isn't it? It's about, you know, to go back to words, um, one of my favorite poems is the, is the poem that was also Nelson Mandela's favorite, Invictus, uh, William Henley's poem. You know, and if you want to get really, you know, bolshy about it, you could say, well, you're not allowed to use that poem unless you're talking about tubercular legs. Um, you know, but it's been used in so many circumstances. That amazing stanza at the end, you know, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And that's a very, very important thing always to me, that as the one atomized human being living inside whatever maelstrom life has placed you in, you have to be the captain of your own soul, the master of your own fate. Stand your ground, stand for something. And what do you stand for? You draw from things like the proclamation, the equality of the human person, from the Declaration on Human Rights, from the Good Friday Agreement, from human decency, from the great commandment to love one another. These are the things that lift you up out of anger, frustration, sectionalism, denominationalism, difference, uh, racism, misogyny, all the isms that are ugly. These are the things that, that force you to push yourself out of all those nasty things into some other space that somewhere, you know, okay, I started out talking about the divine right of kings, but it pushes you into some kind of, I, I call it a, a divine space for want of a better expression, but it's a space that takes you beyond the low human to the high human, you know, the good things. And I think we hit that this year with the commemorations. I think we hit the high, the goodness came out. And, you know, I look at some of the stuff that's going on in other parts of the world, and I think we've got a pretty good country here, really, you know. I really think we've got a good country. Mary McAleese, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank Mary, I just want to say thank you so much. My pleasure. My pleasure. That was really fabulous. My goodness, so complex. Um, there's a small gift from oh, the National you. Library Doesn't to look say very thank small. you for coming. It's thank you. Thank you so much. Thank <laughs> you pleasure. very much. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you.
thank you all so much for being here, especially my son. Thank you. And for remembering when I and your daddy got married. Thank you. <laughs> Don't tell him. You mustn't tell him. <laughs> That was it. Yeah. Oh, you better take that. Yeah.